MSW Media. The Manhattan District Attorney has convened a grand jury to investigate and potentially consider charging Donald Trump. Are criminal charges finally a real possibility? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gilhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Kimberly Summers, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say uh, this news about a special grand jury being impaneled was really something. I mean, you know, we have been waiting for so long for some, you know, potential, uh, you know, justice here relating to Donald Trump. And I think people have felt for a long time that he would always evade accountability given his 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 slipperiness so far. Well, I mean, I feel like I've this poor dead horse over here that I keep <laughs> taking advantage of. I just don't believe that, that there is going to be any, I, I, you know, it's, it's gone on for so long and when we needed it the most, when our democracy was at risk, uh, nothing really happened. And so, and, and we see that with the, you know, the Republicans who refused to have this bipartisan commission to investigate the riots at the, uh, at the Capitol. Uh, you know, I, I just feel like there's uh, just no willingness to uh, pursue justice with him. Yeah. You know, we're kind of like Lucy uh, and we're, or we're Charlie Brown, right? Lucy's got the football and whenever we get, we think we're going to kick the football, she yanks it away. I think that, you know, people at this point, it's like, okay, uh, this has happened so many times. I've seen this story before, whether it's the Mueller investigation, impeachment one, impeachment two. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, you know, I have to say, um, you know, I have been from the beginning suggesting that he wouldn't be held accountable uh, during the Mueller investigation. And I didn't like being right there. I, you know, I think that, you know, in the Mueller investigation in particular, that, uh, it was apparent that he had uh, engaged, for example, in obstruction of justice. So, uh, you know, regarding this, yeah, I have to say what I think is, is more likely here is a prosecution of, you know, some higher ups in the Trump organization, not necessarily Trump himself. So, you know, I, I don't know whether that's justice or not, although I do think that it will be very little solace to Trump uh, his family and so on if, uh, you know, let's say Alan Weisselberg goes down because even if he doesn't flip on Trump, uh, I will tell you from experience that 
uh, when a company has their CFO indicted or convicted, uh, that has a massive impact on the company. There, there definitely will be some impact on the Trump family from this if that if that does in fact happen. Okay, I'll take some solace from that then. <laughs> That's the best we get, right? Uh, well, I will tell you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I do think though there is a sense, you know, that we're we're the the world is moving on from Donald Trump, you know, and right. we're healing from Donald Trump. People are we're emerging from this pandemic. People are getting jobs. People like me. I'm I'm still in temporary housing, uh, you know, moving to a different temporary housing until we find a house. You know, we're all moving on with our lives. And I think that's a good thing. And in some ways, while this is very important that whatever was uncovered, uh, you know, by the Manhattan DA, uh, I, that they see it through. And of course, there are other potential investigations of Fulton County and elsewhere of Trump for other things. You know, while that's important, you know, ultimately building our country back and restoring so many important things in our country is more important. I agree. I, I really do. But I, you know, at the same time, we want to make sure that going forward, this never happens again is a big part of it. I know. And I have to say that that part of it, I don't know uh, if we can do. You know, uh, one one concern I have, I mean, you see the Republicans now, as you pointed out, voting down that the January 6th commission and I really get the sense that if they had the votes and were in a position to to you know declare that the the loser won, you know, boy, wouldn't would they do that? You know, you, you know what I'm saying here. In other words, like Trump tried to steal the election, but you know, it it sure seems like uh, you know the Republicans you wouldn't put it past them to try to do it again if they had the opportunity. Absolutely. No, they're they're demonstrating that in so many ways. Yeah, I have to say that that's the scary thing here is when you have a president who, you know, doesn't care about truth. You know, there is still right. a huge percentage of Americans who think that Trump supporters were not the ones who attacked the Capitol; that it was some sort uh, of left wing people or something. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then here's the thing: if it was Antifa or or left-wing socialists or whatever they think, then they should even want the commission more so in order to prove that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Sorry. You got, me, you got me all worked up again. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. You'll be sorry. You're right. I mean, look, there's no sense to it. It's just it's people being fed nonsense and being told that they can't trust the evidence of their own eyes and ears. I mean, it's very 1984-esque, very scary stuff. Wow. Wow. On that note, you know, now it's like, boy, we get to talk about a subject that is not as uh, dour as that, uh, because we're here talking about, of course, the New York attorney, uh, not the New York attorney general, the Manhattan DA's investigation of Donald Trump, which the New York DA is uh, New York AG has is, is gotten herself involved in. But look, this this investigation is very interesting. It's very important. But I have to say that there's a lot of uh, sloppy, sloppy analysis of this. It, it is important news, but it's something that I think you really have to know your stuff uh, to understand. And I will tell you that before I've said anything publicly or written anything, 
I've called people that I knew uh, who were either in the Manhattan DA's office or in the New York Attorney General's office to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And one of the people that I call is Dan Alonzo. And you've heard him on the podcast before if you've been listening. He was the number two guy under Cy Vance, the Manhattan District Attorney, for a period of time. He was what's called the Chief Assistant District Attorney. And uh, he, so he has extensive experience, uh, not only, uh, you know, by the way, at the Manhattan District Attorney's office itself, but with this particular district attorney. And he was a federal prosecutor, too. Highly knowledgeable, knows a lot about, you know, white collar crime. So somebody who I really respect and somebody who knows his stuff about the ins and outs of New York law, how New York grand juries work, how New York. Uh, uh, investigations work and the policies and procedures of the Manhattan DA's office. So let's bring in Dan Alonzo. So this week we heard this news that a special grand jury had been convened by the Manhattan District Attorney's office. You know, what does that even mean? I think a lot of people were confused about the significance of that news. Yeah, well, it, it's pretty significant, but uh, there is some inside baseball involved. So let me break it down. So grand juries in New York sit regularly in New York County, which is Manhattan. They sit regularly for for what are called terms of four weeks at a time. So if you're called for grand jury duty, you you sit every day for four weeks, usually morning only or afternoon only. And then that's it. You're done. When there's a case of, of some complexity, typically in fraud and corruption cases, but sometimes in complex narcotics trafficking or organized crime, uh, the DA just doesn't have enough time it, within a four-week regular period to introduce the evidence and, you know, uh, seek indictments in particular cases. So in those cases, it is common when the DA believes that he has enough evidence to proceed with charges at some point against someone to uh, impanel what they call a colloquially a special grand jury. It's really just an additional grand jury of the four-week variety, and then they extend it by court order, in this case, apparently, for six months. Uh, and, and that special grand jury will uh, be able to hear uh, all the evidence that the DA presents. And also, so it's not just about presenting complex charges, it's also about the DA being able to use the grand jury to its fullest investigative extent, right? Obviously, as you know, you can compel testimony, and sometimes witnesses are pretty hostile. And so that process can be a little bit time-consuming and cumbersome. So having the flexibility of a grand jury that doesn't expire right away is uh, is very powerful for the investigative function of the DA and the grand jury. Right. So just so everyone understands, there have been grand juries that you know have have been in you know uh, involved in this case in the sense that the grand juries have been used, let's say, to issue subpoenas and so forth. But you're going to have a grand jury. At, uh, at this point, as Dan's saying, hear evidence in the form of, let's say, witness testimony, and you want the same grand jury that hears that testimony to be considering whatever indictments come out of this down the line. That's why it's important to have a grand jury for a longer term. Is that is that fair to say? It's fair to say, and I'll add that you not only want it, but you're required to have it because in New York State, unlike federal grand juries, as a general matter, hearsay is not admissible. So you have to present the actual testimony of witnesses to the the facts at issue. And so that itself is time consuming and also means that if a witness testified, say, before a previous grand jury whose term expired, 
that witness has to testify again, uh, you know, if that testimony is important for any of the charges that are going to be presented, unlike, again, in a federal grand jury where you would just read the transcript of the previous witness to the new grand jury. So it is a, a much more cumbersome process than the federal grand jury, but it's just as powerful. It's a very powerful investigative tool. Yeah, very interesting. And is, is Dan saying, you know, what we would do in, a, in the federal setting is if a grand jury expired, then you've got to read the transcripts uh, into a new grand jury. Pain in the uh, in the butt takes time, waste of resources. Uh, not as good, I think, for the grand jurors than hearing the actual testimony, but you can get it done. Uh, but here, obviously, uh, now this really, I think, then means that they are a bit, a bit on, a, it, it suggests to me then, based on what you're saying, that they think they can get this done in six months. Uh, it suggests that they think they can. Now, it's not unheard of for special grand juries to be extended again. Typically, the grand jurors don't like that. They, you know, they kind of come in with an expectation. Uh, here, we've heard that it's three days a week. I don't have any inside knowledge of that, but let's assume it's three days a week. Usually, that means it's either the morning or the afternoon, three days a week for six months. It's a long time. Uh, if they are asked to extend again, they might not want to. And they have the right to vote, by the way. I've actually had, I once had a, a special grand jury vote down a request to extend. <laughs> so you, you really want to try to get it all in within the term that the grand jury expects. Wow. All right. So that actually gives us some real, um, some real, uh, a sense here of what the timeline could be. It also, I think what it means to me, and I'd be curious if, if you would agree with this, Dad, given your experience and knowledge, that they have enough evidence at this point to know things that they want to present. In other words, to know not only documents that they want to show, things like that, but also know what witnesses they may want to call. I don't think you would want to do something like this until you already had a pretty good game plan of what you were going to be doing over those six months. I agree with that to an extent. They, they clearly have a game plan. They clearly know some of what they want. But oftentimes during the term of a long-term grand jury, new things come up, new witnesses arise. And so they're, they're going to be flexible. They're going to want to be flexible. And that's okay. They don't have to have it all, all mapped out now. And by the way, I don't, I don't think they know as they sit as they sit here today, what exact charges they plan to present. All I can suppose from the fact that they impaneled this is that they believe they're going to have charges to present against somebody. Uh, but uh, oftentimes those decisions don't get made until some of the evidence is in. Sometimes you want to hear how well did it come in. Uh, unlike in a federal grand jury, you can a little bit test the witnesses in, in a state grand jury because they, they testify personally. Yes. And so just to give a sense of the difference in a federal grand jury, you can have what's called a summary witness. So you can have put in an FBI agent who says, yeah, I spoke to this person and they said this and I spoke to that person and they said that. As Dan uh, pointed out, that's all hearsay, not admissible um, in under New York law. You have to have the actual witness. So that 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 makes things interesting. I will say that one thing that often happens during the grand jury process is that when, let's say, a flipper or some a cooperator testifies, you, you may end up having, uh, or particularly if there's somebody who's compelled to testify, in other words, they're given, a, they don't want to testify, but you give them immunity, and so they do testify. You know, what, what sometimes happens is you'll learn of another witness. It'll kind of help you move along a chain, and so you'll have another witness that might come up as well. 
For sure. And one one key difference, as long as we're talking about it, and you mentioned immunity, federal grand juries don't give immunity automatically. It has to be given, as you know, after the witness asserts the Fifth Amendment and by court order and by application of the U.S. attorney after going through a process. State grand juries, under the law, every witness who testifies, whether they have exposure, criminal exposure or not, gets automatic immunity and not just the limited use, the limited immunity they get in federal court, uh, use and fruits immunity, it's called colloquially, but they get full transactional immunity. So the, the best example I can give is if, if, if the ADA calls somebody into the grand jury and says, sir, what do you do for a living? And the person says, oh, I'm an international drug dealer. <laughs> well, they get immunity for that. They cannot be prosecuted in state court ever for the international drug dealing they had done up to then. Yeah, I think that sounds to me like it could be even more fruit for potential avenues of investigation. And so one thing that it seems to me, you know, we've talked, you, one thing you've, I think, been careful to say is, you know, it looks like they, they think that they're going to bring charges, some charge against someone. And I want, I think, our listeners to understand that just because the Manhattan DA may bring a charge against someone doesn't mean that that person's last name will be Trump. Uh, and in particular, when you're dealing with, you know, fraud charges, whether they're tax fraud, bank fraud, or other types of, of charges that, that involve false statements and financial documents, often the, the first person that you're going to think of charging is the person who prepared or approved or authorized or really had their hands in those financial documents. Uh, what is your take on that? In, a, in an accounting fraud case like this one is... Right. We, we, we have to just, you know, prosecutors, Renato, as you know, put cases into categories or rubrics. Right. And in the world of fraud, you know, there's investment fraud, the Ponzi schemes, there are embezzlements. Um, this is an accounting fraud. And a lot of times accounting frauds can be, you know, famously, you know, WorldCom or Enron where you're defrauding shareholders. But it can also be smaller cases that I've done. I say smaller. Some of them were in the hundred million dollar range. But Smaller cases I, I did in my career were defrauding lenders like banks or consortiums of lenders. Here, you've got the allegation that they're possibly defrauding lenders, they're possibly defrauding the tax authorities, and they're possibly defrauding insurance underwriters. So at the end of the day, the key, the linchpin for all that is the accounting. You know, how is it accounted for? How were those decisions made? Uh, who made them? And were they if they if they made decisions that are irreconcilable, that really can't be squared with each other, was that on purpose? Right. That's the key question. And then once you get was it on purpose? OK, now you've got a crime. Uh, now you have to figure out against whom you have the evidence. So, yes, the, the, the look, long way of saying the CFO is the most important person. I also investigated some large frauds against lenders. And it's, you know, it seemed to me by real estate developers actually prosecuted many, a number of them. And what was the issue there? Usually what it all came down to was and it does. I think I would say this, this is the case in most fraud cases is knowledge and intent to defraud. In other words, did the, did the person that you're prosecuting, uh, let's say real estate developer X, did that person have any sense of these false statements? Was there some sort of scheme behind it? Were they trying to trick the lender in some way? That could be very difficult. I, what in your, in your experience, what types of evidence have you used to prove those, you know, that, I think, that piece of a fraud case? 
well, I'd be interested in your experience too. But uh, the you know, typically you want the internal communications. Uh, you want the work papers of if it's a tax case, the the tax preparers. If it's a uh, financial statements case, the auditors, uh, and also the the internal accountants um, who who are part of management. So there's going to be a lot of documentation. You know, accountants tend to document stuff. Auditors tend to document stuff. So you're going to see that. And to the extent that you're going to see pre presentation of financial information to different places at different times and different years, uh, they're never going to be able to keep that all straight in order to kind of make it all, you know, they can't really falsify it all. So I think that you, you really do get a big picture when you look at years and years worth of notes and work papers and emails and things like that. Uh, so, so that's key, uh, and 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 of course, after that, you, that that only takes you so far. You need witnesses. You need witnesses to say, you know, this is what I meant when I wrote this in my notes. This is what I understood when I received this direction from my boss, etc. So th that's the kind of stuff. Short of you know, those great cases you and I know well, like wiretaps or anything like that. Short of that, that's how you do an accounting fraud case. Yeah, I, I will say in my experience. So in an accounting fraud case, certainly. To the extent accountants or anyone preparing financial documents are involved, they always say, hey, it wasn't me. I, I had no idea. I just took the numbers I was given by my client and I did the right thing. Okay, They, they say that 100% of the time. Never now, you get, accountant. now you're getting into defenses. But yeah, sure, of course, they, 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 they will say that. Or, or they might say they did it because a lawyer advised them it was okay or, or their outside tax person advised them it was okay. Sure. Oh, right. No, but my my point, too, is just like if they're not the defendant, I mean, usually what ends up happening for the defendant is, you know, the, the tax preparer is always going to get on the stand and say, hey, I just got what I got here. You know, I, you know, the Lazars of the world, let's say in this case, you know, are just going to get up there and say, sure, we, we took the information we were given and did it honestly. You know, that puts it back on the client on potentially who the defendant is. Uh, to me, usually, though, the issue is particularly when you have, let's say, busy businessman X, they've got a lot of things on their plate, right? The defenses get always, hey, I've got, you know, I've got so many different companies and ventures and I'm so busy and I signed so many things. I really am not focused on the, the number on page 14 of this document. And the answer is usually, as you, you say, witness testimony uh, or some sort of salty communication of some kind, some email, text message, whatever it may be, that is, um, you know, that is so obviously compelling as to this point that it makes it clear that they're trying to do something shady. Uh, yeah, but that that is those are the kinds of uh, defenses that are more available to the CEOs and the COOs, you know, in this case, Donald Trump. Um, the, the, I think Weisselberg would have a hard time with that defense. I mean, he might be able to say, look, there's 500 entities in the Trump organization and I can't keep it all straight. But I think that probably will ring hollow since he's been doing it for so many years. And there will be just so many things with the signature on it, so many meetings he's been at. And, you know, we have Michael Cohen, who, whether he testifies or doesn't testify, he said that Alan Weisselberg was involved in absolutely everything. And my guess is that um, that's not a secret, right? Uh, Michael Cohen mm -hmm. can't be the only, the only one that knows that. So uh, no doubt as they as they interview lower level people from the Trump organization and counterparties, people that they're negotiating with or dealing with, everyone will say, oh, yeah, Alan knew everything.
Well, that, and that's the that's that's in many ways the point I was going to be getting at here is you essentially th- I just this is to help listeners understand because a lot of our listeners are thinking okay Donald Trump's going down it's much easier to make the case against the Ellen Weisselberg of the world than the Donald Trump of the world and and it may even be even easier than making the case against Ellen making it against somebody who's a rung below him who was even more intimately involved. You know, in other words, that person, you may make the case against that person first. They help you. They they end up cooperating against Alan Weisselberg. And then Weisselberg is your lead defendant at first. And once you get a conviction on Weisselberg, then maybe he's interested in flipping on on one of the Trumps. But it's 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 much easier when you have somebody whose job it is to be focused on these you know financial documents are really involved in the preparation in some way versus somebody who's got a lot of different things in their plate. Absolutely, and we should say this is all assuming that they in fact committed a willful fraud, right? We don't we don't even know that. We know that there's enough predication to investigate, and it's a serious investigation that the DA wants to present some charges. Uh, but so so assuming that that there is a fraud, uh, you know, it would be much harder for Weisselberg to kind of you know, weasel, weasel out of the evidence than it would be for someone like, uh, like Trump. I will say that, that, that there are accounting fraud cases. I can remember one from the Manhattan DA's office where, uh, if you don't flip the CFO, it's much harder to convict the, the CEO, the CEO and the CEO of that. I'm thinking of the, the case of the law firm Dewey and LaBeouf, where there was clearly an accounting fraud, $150 million or so. And there were, I don't know, seven or so lower level people, accounting type people and the CFO, who were convicted, but the COO was acquitted and the CEO uh, ultimately, I think, got a deferred prosecution or, or, or dismissal, I don't remember. Uh, that's because they had to make the case against them wholly circumstantially through a few cryptic emails and that's it. So I think the, the, it's really crucial that the CFO gets flipped. And as I've said, you know, in the last few days in, to, to, to other interviewers, the case could end up being people versus Alan Weisselberg if he doesn't flip. You know, there might not be a, a Donald Trump or any Trump, any Trump involved. Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation, Dan. And, and I think, you know, obviously everyone knows that we don't know for sure, but I think that's exactly right. You know, it, somebody like an Alan Weisselberg is is going to have a harder time uh, figuring out, uh, you know, a way to explain uh, away all of his, you know, like you said, his signature on different documents. But to get somebody like a Donald Trump or an Eric Trump or somebody in there who's got who's who's more of a manager overall in a business uh, like that, you really need to have um, some witness testimony or something more. And, and you know, what folks need to understand is we don't really have a telescope to see inside somebody's head. We don't know exactly what's going on in their mind. And what you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, if you're a prosecutor here, is that the person knew that some whatever statements were in this financial document were false and that they made sure that those or they ensured that those got transmitted to whether it's a lender or the tax authorities in order to make you know money, to trick them into getting money somehow. And to do that, to make that uh, proof, you really need somebody like a Weisselberg to say, I was in the room, we discussed this, Trump told me to, you know, let's let's get the numbers up, let's push the numbers up, or whatever that, that hypothetical conversation you could imagine. Or you really need some killer email or 
text message or something like that. And I don't know whether Trump uses those those forms of communication even. I, I think it could be a challenge. So, you know, this is this is a case everyone should understand that, you know, in, in a fraud in a particularly in a fraud case, um, you know, you really need to have that evidence of intent to defraud and knowledge. And so this very well, as you said, the lead charge may very well be United States versus Weisselberg. And frankly, that is an impressive result uh, if they're able to accomplish that. I agree. It's an impressive result. I will say that uh, if they have enough evidence to charge Weisselberg, he would easily qualify as a high managerial agent uh, from the perspective of New York law, which is what's required to charge a corporation. So if they charge Weisselberg, it's highly likely they will also charge either the holding company, the Trump organization, or or one of the uh, many entities. We obviously don't know which ones submitted which documentation uh, that, that might be found to be criminal, but they will almost certainly, under their policy on charging organizations, charge one or more entities because I think because it's unlikely that the Trump organization is cooperating within the meaning of that policy. Uh, so there's really not a whole lot of reason to give the entities leniency, as you might see in corporate deferred prosecution agreements and things like that that you've talked about on your show in past episodes. Well, that's interesting. It's an important point. So federally, there's very much a policy against charging corporations uh, you know, you, the, the preference is to charge individuals because you can throw them in prison and ask for corporations. There's a concern that innocent employees or shareholders may be harmed. Uh, you're not really hurting the perpetrators. It sounds to me like the policy uh, that the Manhattan district attorney is going to be governed by is, is, uh, is perhaps a little bit more uh, congruent with charging corporations? In other words, there are less obstacles to potentially charging a corporation. You know, it's funny. We, we, we based our, I'm actually the author of that policy. So we based it in 2010 on the federal principles of federal prosecution of business organizations. Mm -hmm. so it's meant to be relatively similar to, to the federal policy, but, but the, you know, the factors that influ so influence federal decision-making apply here. You know, you want to see, do they have a really great compliance program that would have avoided the crime in, in issue? I doubt mm -hmm. it. Did they self-report? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, did, you know, did they fully cooperate, which means more than just complying with legal process? I, I have no reason to believe they haven't responded to subpoenas. But, you know, one thing you want to do when you're investigating a corporation is you want to interview the CFO and the CEO and you, you know, without their demanding immunity. So uh, mm -hmm. I doubt that has happened. Obviously, it hasn't. We know that. So right. and, and I don't have all the factors at my fingertips right now, but you get the you get the picture. I get it. That there's a presumption of leniency for corporations if they do certain things. And I'm highly doubtful that the Trump organization uh, has done those things. Wow. Yeah, that that would be that would be very meaningful. I, I will say that, you know, it that would have a very dramatic impact on that on that organization. And already, look, I represent now that I'm in private practice, I represent uh, corporations that are under investigation. That's just part, it's part of what I do. And just the mere uh, fact that there may be a you know knowledge that's out there about an investigation of a corporation can have very significant impact on that uh, organization because 
they can but they may have to disclose that and likely will have to disclose that to lenders to people they're trying to do business with people they're trying to sell assets to you know people they're trying to merge with that sort of thing they the employees uh, you know get distracted from their job because they have to be interviewed they have uh, some of them may want to quit they may think that they may not have a future there that the company's going to have some problems and when you have an indictment, of course, that can have an even more de- detrimental impact on a company. Yeah, and it's a, and and real estate developers, you know, do work with governments for permits and things like that, and it's at a minimum a red flag in terms of getting such permits, uh, and you know, it could well impede development. So, yeah, it's it's a problem. I mean, obviously, it's not as much of a problem as if it were, say, you know, to name the example we just said, a law firm or a bank because they're regu- very regulated industries. But I do think that it, it, it yeah, it, it would be at least somewhat of a problem for the Trump organization. Now, we, we've talked, I think, in very high level terms about, you know, you've mentioned accounting fraud. We've talked to, I've mentioned taxes. What sort of char- what sort of charges under New York law, you know, are, pot- are potential here? I mean, obviously we don't know exactly what they're looking at, but based on reports, what what are the sort of things that we should should be expecting them to come out with here? You know, New York law, as I, I've told you before, Bernardo um, is not as strong as federal law. So there there are charges that can be brought, but they you know they they all have kind of caveats to them, and they don't have as strong penalties, generally speaking, as federal statutes. So for for example, there is no New York state crime of bank fraud. But there are crimes that relate to falsifying records of banks and falsifying business records of entities in general. Uh, And there are crimes like uh, theoretically larceny by false pretenses. That's very difficult to do in a loan case, but it could be uh, could be brought. Then you have tax fraud. You have insurance fraud, in theory, if you lie to the to the underwriters. You have uh, the falsification of the business records of the organization, of the Trump organization, based on the Stormy Daniels payments and other things. And, you know, if they are if there is any fraud in connection with any kind of uh, real estate development that that sells shares. uh, So if they're selling uh, membership interests in LLCs or they're selling uh, condo shares uh, there, there is the possibility of using the state securities fraud law, the Martin Act. Uh, I can't remember offhand if condo shares count as securities, but obviously interest in corporations do. So there could be some issuance uh, of securities. And if there were false statements in that, it could be the Martin Act. I don't think that's the likeliest charge here. Uh, and then, of course, I think one of your listeners uh, asked this on Twitter. Then, of course, if you bring that all together and you have many years of evidence, in theory, we're speculating, but there is the state anti-racketeering law, which is called OCA, the Organized Crime Control Act much, much weaker law than RICO, the federal law. But it is at least theoretically possible if there are three pattern acts within uh, within 10 years, and the, I forget if it's the last two or within five years of each other, you know, there's a whole bunch of requirements and the pattern acts have to uh, relate to a criminal enterprise, not just an enterprise. Uh, but if you have all that, you could have a, a state anti-racketeering charge, and that's a high-level felony. That's a, a felony that carries max uh, mandatory state prison. Yeah, they, you know, it's in, very interesting, all the different potential charges. What interests me the most as a former prosecutor are these falsification of business records, because you know, usually in a white-collar case, I was 
always very focused on proving fraud. That's where a lot of white collar cases are. But falsification of business records seems to me like you'd have a lower uh, state of mind requirement. Like I wouldn't need to prove intent to defraud if I was a prosecutor. That might make it a more attractive charge. Well, you do need you actually do need to prove intent to defraud. <laughs> oh well, then For forget that business record. Uh, but it's not; it's a more generalized intent to defraud. Um, and but but in any event, it's only a misdemeanor if all you do is prove intent to defraud. You have to, in addition, prove intent to commit another crime to make it a felony. So. Oh Jesus! Okay, then, well, then forget that I'll, then. Remember what I've told you about New York law. Uh, so, but there's a if it's if it, you know it could be you're falsifying the business records of an entity with the intent to commit a tax crime, uh, and and so that that could well kick it up to a felony, and those are predicate acts for an OCA prosecution in theory. So, you know, they're, 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 they are favorite charges of, of New York fraud prosecutors. Think of, yeah, it as not- Think of it as a difference between when you've got FCPA cases, you know, foreign corrupt practices. Uh, it's a difference between proving actual bribery of a foreign official, which can be hard, versus proving the books, that the books and records of an entity were falsified. It's, it's sort of an analogous to that. Yeah, it's interesting. And one thing that listeners should know is that uh, often prosecutors charge similar uh, activity in multiple different ways. You might even have an indictment that charges the same thing three different ways or very similar acts that are related to the same sort of what we would consider a layperson would say, oh, this is all the same thing. It's not legally the same thing, but, you know, it can often give a jury, you know, jury may may look at it through one lens rather than another, be more likely to convict on one charge rather than another. So you could see multiple charges relating to a very similar activity. So um, we do have some, you know, you mentioned that, Dan, we had some questions from listeners. I know we have some other ones. And Patty, do you have one for us? Of course. Uh, always great questions from our listeners. If the DA grand jury issues subpoenas for testimony, won't Trump refuse to comply and cite executive privilege? absolute immunity. He's done so before, even though his rationale could be spurious, the intent might be to win, not to win, but just run out the clock on the statute of limitations. It would be uncharted territory for a former president to try to prevent the investigation of a private company that he owns because he used to be president. I think it it sounds spurious just saying it out loud, uh, but I I can't say 100% it would never work because it's never been tried before. What I can say is that if he tried that in a state court with a state grand jury judge, he w- it would be given short shrift. He really doesn't have any right to refuse to comply with subpoenas to the corporation right now. If there's a subpoena to him him personally, of course he has he has. Um, it, it's actually an interesting thing because in in federal cases you have a Fifth Amendment privilege that you can assert. In state cases, as I said, you get immunity. So if he gets a subpoena himself, which is unlikely, uh, he, he might want to comply so he can get immunity. But the DA is not going to subpoena him personally because they don't want to give him immunity. They would subpoena the Trump organization, and organizations don't have Fifth Amendment privileges at all. So, so the organization would have to turn things over. And any objection based on the fact that he used to be president is highly, highly unlikely to succeed. So what? Yeah, one thing that is good news about what you just said is that you know a lot of our listeners have been frustrated during the Trump presidency about uh, him using his office to prevent himself from uh, you know having to face 
um, whether it's just, you know, a testimony or compliance with subpoenas, things of that nature. That really is coming to an end here. He's no longer president. Uh, he doesn't have any uh, immunity that he's going to be able to assert here. There's no executive privileges to what is happening at the Trump organization. But I do see, uh, we've already seen, that he's that Trump is u- attacking uh, the Manhattan district attorney. He also attacked, uh, of course, New York attorney general as political attack. This prosecution is politically motivated. Regardless of who is who is charged, I, th- I would think that a top Trump organization official would make some argument at trial. Part of the trial strategy would be to argue that it's a politically motivated prosecution in an effort to, um, I don't think it would matter legally, but in an effort to try to get the jury to be sympathetic with the defense. Uh, what What do you think? You hit the nail on the head by saying you don't think it's going to matter legally. It doesn't matter legally unless they can make a real a real argument with real evidence, right? So if in fact there was some politically motivated conspiracy to, you know, slap some charge on Trump for that precise reason because he was such a, you know, bad president or they don't like Republicans or whatever it is, that would be actually legally cognizable, uh, you know, as outrageous governmental conduct. But that's not what the facts are going to show here, right? I, I, I presume, I know Cy Vance very well, uh, I don't know Tish James um, very much at all, but I would presume that both of them are going to carry out and their staffs are going to carry out professional investigations aware that Trump is going to make these charges no matter what. So they are, by all indications, doing this in a professional way. Uh, and I I think that, you know, there is some fodder out there because Tish James ran for office uh, a couple of years ago and did say things about Trump. But you know, that office has been tangling with Trump for years in a whole bunch of other other uh, areas. And so that's a little bit natural. And plus, it stopped. And, and unless Trump can show that her political animus, if she has it, is, is has influenced the decision to uh, prosecute him, he's not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Now, and that's a good point. We, you, we, you, we both uh, talked, uh, alluded to Tish James, the New York attorney general. You know, she recently had an announcement that I thought was, in my opinion, vaguely worded because it said essentially they're going to have they're they're having they're making a, their investigation a criminal investigation alongside the Manhattan DA. Can you just explain to us exactly what was meant by that, as far as you understand it? Sure, um, that's a great question because I noticed the exact same thing, and it was vaguely worded, and it was unnecessary. So I don't know why they why they did that. Uh, they, you know, alongside could mean that there are two parallel criminal investigations, or it could mean that she's joining the Manhattan DA's investigation. And the answer is she's joining the Manhattan DA's investigation. The two of her lawyers are being cross-designated, is what we call it, when lawyers from one office uh, become special lawyers for the other office. So they're going to be special assistant DAs, or they already are. And so, so the alongside will be together with um, with the DA. I, I do think that. You know, ordinarily, you don't want to say anything during an investigation. That was a pretty vanilla statement. Uh, I don't think it's it's that big a deal that she said. She said it. She had already told the Trump organization a while earlier by letter, apparently, that uh, the civil investigation had become criminal. So, uh, so, you know, it's okay for prosecutors in matters of great public interest to just make a statement, you know, we're investigating. That's not a big deal. But I do agree with you that that, that particular statement was ambiguous. Yeah, I mean, what it took, I took it to mean is I think she wanted 
you know, she wanted to take some credit here. And that that told me that she thought that this investigation was going places. That was my my takeaway of it. I, I, I don't think that she's a politician much more than Cy Vance uh, is. This is I don't know either individual. This is just purely my opinion based upon what I've seen publicly. She ran for a statewide office. And so which, and I understand that. And I think, you know, she is making a calculus here that that this is the you know, this is a, a good thing for her office to be involved in. So. Yeah, New York has a long tradition of attorneys general being uh, more political in their statements than DAs. So. <laughs> no doubt. Well, well, Patty, I know you. we have another question from a listener. What, what do we got? Yes. Uh, since Trump pardoned Manafort, Bannon and uh, such folks like that, can they be called to testify against him, unable to take the fifth? Also, Trump wouldn't have to tell us if he'd already pardoned Weiselberg, Giuliani, his kids or other folks, would he? So uh, let me take the second part first. I, I wrote a, a piece in CNN opinion in late December that answers that question. Uh, and I believe that Trump is capable, um, is allowed under the Constitution to issue pardons and not file them with, um, with the government. In other words, issue secret pardons, because the Constitution only requires that a pardon be produced and pled at the time of a prosecution sometime in the future. Uh, and as long as it's authentic, obviously that would be a huge question with a guy with the credibility of Trump. But as long as it's authentic, then the pardon would be a defense. Uh, it would violate the Presidential Records Act not to file it, but that would not invalidate the pardon, in my view. So, uh, so I think that you know perhaps he 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 did pardon those people, uh, and perhaps he didn't. In any event, it wouldn't affect the state case because those pardons can only work federally. So, um, so I so I, I that's the that's the best answer there is that you shouldn't worry that Weisselberg has been pardoned for state prosecutions. As far as people who have been who have really been pardoned for federal cases, can they be called as witnesses? So in the state court, any person in the world who's called as a witness gets immunity, so they can't take the Fifth Amendment. So that's there's no special rule for Manafort or, or whomever else. Uh, but if they were called federally, I think that they might still have a Fifth Amendment privilege to assert because there, there's always the possibility, theoretical at least, of a state prosecution. So it's a little complicated. But uh, you know, there's an argument that they don't have a Fifth Amendment privilege because they've been pardoned, but they could say that they fear jeopardy from other authorities other than the federal government, uh, in which case, uh, you know, if that's colorable, that would probably be accepted. Yeah, I think I, I agree with I agree with that answer. I don't know. I, I take no position on the pardon, the secret pardon issue. I haven't studied that. But the rest of that is exactly right. I will, from my perspective as well, I will say that uh, I think it's very interesting uh, the you know you've you've informed us and taught me about the the rules in New York grand jury. Federally, that would be an issue, as you as you pointed out, uh, Dan. So I think you know, this feature of New York grand juries, you automatically get immunity. In some ways, benefits prosecutors. I mean, I'm sure in some it could be frustrating in certain circumstances, but one benefit is you just uh, people you don't have to fight about taking the fifth. That's that may be the only benefit. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But I do, I do, I do, I do like that piece of it. If I was the prosecutor, well, look, I have to say, I mean, this is interesting. And, and what I'm, I'm hoping that people got from this conversation, Dan, is that this isn't the sort of, you know, this is very interesting news. It's, it is meaningful. It does mean something. It is important. We're, there's certainly a, a road that's being moved down here. 
But the imagination that people may have that, you know, Donald Trump is going to be uh, handcuffed in, in Mar-a-Lago and dragged into the Manhattan in, 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 uh, uh, in uh, custody, uh, that's not necessarily uh, what we should be taking from this. Correct. We're, we're along. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, Dan, I appreciate this. You know, you thank you for coming back because I, I learned so much the last time from you now that, we're, you know, I, I think it's clear. I and I'm sure listeners can tell I'm learning from you at the same time that they are. So it's just it's really fantastic. Very happy to help. Around. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 